I would invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. And if you do not have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. I would encourage you to follow along with us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. And as you have promised, um, your spirit, the author of your word, would be our teacher. And we pray that he will reveal the truth to us, and that you'll make application to us individually, corporately, and that our minds will be fixed on your truth. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. So. Well, we finished chapter 5 uh, last week. I don't know if you ever say you can finish a point, portion of the scripture, but uh, we finished chapter 5, and I read that because there is a clear transition that is seamless when you look from Romans 5, 18, and particularly verse 20 and 21 into chapter 6. Uh, in, in chapter 5, to the close... Paul declares the superabounding grace of God uh, that sinners in Adam who inherited death and condemnation, he says, but grace is greater and that grace leads to life in Christ Jesus. So we might call chapter 5, the whole of chapter 5, we may call it uh, the result of the gospel, the result of the gospel, uh, justification even, establishing one standing before God, which is righteous and holy. Now, it's important that we distinguish what is happening here as we transition into what is the pivotal uh, chapters in Romans chapter uh, 6, 7, and 8. Romans chapter 6 and 7, 8 is where we actually learn the practical application of the gospel. And so we find in Romans 5, just as I mentioned, the result of the gospel God declares righteous and holy before him a people based on no merit of their own, solely on uh, Christ alone, by grace alone, through scripture alone, for his glory alone. He declares sinners right. That is positionally, that will never change. But then we move into chapter 6, and we read the first four verses, which we will look at today. And we may call chapter 6 the practical application of the gospel. So we have the result of the gospel in chapter 5, and actually chapter 4 would include that. And then we have the unfolding of the practical application of the gospel, which will carry through 6, 7, and 8. And we might call this the big word theologians use of sanctification. We have justification in 4 and 5, and now we have sanctification in 6 and beyond. Now, as you open up chapter 6, we'll see that Paul begins with a question Actually, a couple of those. But what shall we say? Are we continuing sin that grace may abound? What he's anticipating is pushback. We saw earlier in the chapters that he had pushback uh, from the Jewish. Remember, this is a mixed congregation. Is that the Jews were claiming uh, a preferential treatment uh, from God because they had his law. Uh, they were circumcised. Uh, they had Abraham and so forth. So Paul is anticipating that there is going to be pushback against this grace uh, that he says abounds greater than our sin. And that the Jew might come back and say, well, if that's the case, let's just sin a whole bunch more. Let's just keep on sinning that grace may abound. And he's going to address that. And he actually addresses that in verse 1 and verse 15 with questions. What shall we say then? What then? It's almost like he's looking at them and he's shaking his head and says, you don't get it. Is it, no, you can't do this. It's, contra it's a contradiction in itself. 
Now, I think what is important for us is to go back and understand from the very beginning what Paul says the gospel is and what the gospel does. Because we have to understand that the gospel is not just a message that you say you believe without life ramifications. Is the gospel is radical. And the gospel is so radical that it is called the dunamis. It is called the power of God unto salvation. Go back to Romans chapter 1. I want you to look at Romans chapter 1 with me. Because here's a great time to remind ourselves just what the gospel is. The gospel that we claim to believe. And then we have to look at what the gospel does. Because the gospel does not leave you unchanged. And that's what Paul's argument is in Romans 6. Is that you would say, well, if this is all about grace, if it's all about simply believing this gospel of yours, then let's just believe on it and just go on like we are because you say that where sin abounded, grace was more. So let's sin a whole bunch more so that grace will abound much more. And Paul is saying that is absolutely preposterous because that is just crazy. And that's basically what he's saying. By no means, he said, huh? You don't get this at all. And that becomes a very fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. And I would argue that in Christendom today, in the circles of evangelicalism, if that term even has meaning today, is that if you look around the landscape, there is a total misunderstanding of the biblical gospel. And to understand the biblical gospel... You need to go beyond, say, I just believe on Jesus. It is a belief that has radical implications in every area of your life. Now look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is the theme verse of Romans. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here is what the gospel is. It is the dynamite, the word dunamis. It is the dynamite power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the impartiality of the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So by virtue of us understanding the gospel is a message of power, then that power has to have impact in your life. You can't simply say, I believe the gospel and then his power has no impact on you, then you are actually negating the gospel. Is the gospel has the dynamite power to make explosive uh, inroads in your life against the very thing that you can't do anything about, and that's your sin. Now look at verses um, uh, 1 through 5 of Romans. And then I would ask you also to hold your fingers and go all the way back to Romans 16, verse 25. Because now I want us to see what the gospel does. What does the gospel does? Now, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, I know what the gospel does, Jim. I, I, I know what it does. It, it removes wrath. It makes me right with God. It justifies me. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all true. But if you don't go beyond that, you don't understand the ramifications of the gospel. Is the gospel is far more than just removing the wrath of God off of us. The gospel is far more than you just being forgiven. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and it's also the power of God unto sanctification or the living of the Christian life. Do you find it interesting that Paul would tell the Romans? Let's take a look at that. Romans chapter 1, Verse 1 through 5 is what we're going to read, but I want you to go down and look what he says here. He says later on in verse 18 or 15 of chapter 1, look what he says. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. Now, obviously, there's going to be unbelievers, and just like in this crowd here. But Paul is saying that he has come to preach the gospel to Christians. And so what does the gospel do? What does the gospel do besides remove wrath? What does it do besides take away uh, our guilt? Well, verses 1 through 5 of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5, he defines what the gospel does. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, go back to uh, Romans 16 and verse 25. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, now notice he said according to my gospel, now being disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. What? According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So he would book in the entire letter of Romans with what the gospel does. What does the gospel does? It brings you salvation that produces obedience to the faith. Don't lose sight of that. Is the gospel doesn't just save you. The gospel empowers you to live the Christian life. The gospel is what you need every day to live the Christian life. And if you're not telling yourself the gospel on a regular basis, then how are you tapping into the dynamite power to live the Christian life? And I, for so long, have missed this whole point. Is the gospel, I think sometimes the gospel gets just tucked away as a means of salvation, and then once you got that, you just got to put the gospel aside, and you just break it out when you're sharing Jesus. The gospel needs to be opened up in the whole of the Christian life, because the gospel is what enables you to obey the faith. To obey the faith. And in Romans chapter 6, you can go back there now. In Romans chapter 6, we are seeing, we are seeing how the gospel expounded is applied in the Christian life. Sometimes I think there's a disconnect in our discipleship. We're eager to lead someone. We're eager to get the gospel to the unsaved. But then when we respond to the gospel, what do we do? We need to keep them ever before the gospel and teach them how to live the Christian life according to the power of the gospel. And what unfolds in chapter 6 and beyond is justification by faith taught from Romans 3.21 to 5.21 now becomes justification lived. Justification taught now becomes justification lived or sanctification or what the gospel does. The Westminster Larger Catechism shows this union of justification and sanctification. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to ensure that these believers, the Jews who may be antagonistic towards the gospel, and then the professing Christians who think that uh, they can just continue as they were and that believe the gospel, he's trying to get them to understand that there is an inseparable marriage between justification and sanctification. You cannot, you cannot be a justified person and not go on into sanctification. Or you cannot be saved and not continue to be changed by the gospel that saved you. The Westminster Larger Catechism says with the question, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? Answer, although sanctification be separably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, His Spirit infuses grace, enabling us to exercise the former. In justification, sin is pardoned. In sanctification, sin is subdued. Get a hold of that. In justification, sin is pardoned. In sanctification, sin is subdued or the power is laid low because of the gospel. So that was by way of introduction. And now let's take a look then at Romans 6. Now, Romans 6, uh, it, it's, it's all about our, our being dead to sin, alive to God. And, and, and it breaks out nicely with the questions. Verse 1 all the way through to uh, verse 14. So, verses uh, 1 through 14, we, we're going to call this union with Christ, death to sin, alive to God. And we're going to spend uh, some time in Romans chapter 6. Um, I believe Romans chapter 6 
is one of the most important chapters in the Christian life. Is that you need to understand what Romans 6 means to you as a Christian. Because Romans 6 is what equips you to live out the dark periods of Romans 7. And then Romans 8 comes with the light back on again. But in uh, chapter 6, I've been reading the sermons by Thomas Manton. Thomas Manton, uh, he preached 24 sermons on Romans 6. Don't sit there and think, oh no, uh, I've, I've got 28. Um, so, so we're not going to be doing that, but we want to spend some ample time because I, if, if you're anything like me, I've looked in my Christian life so long and I think there's been too much self-effort. There's been too much not understanding how the gospel empowers Christian living. And there's been too much of trying to be uh, the good Christian based on m- mere conduct. That doesn't make me a hypocrite. It doesn't make you a hypocrite. It makes us ignorant. Is we don't understand the implications of what happened to us when Christ died and rose from the dead and our union with him. And so Romans 6 is really about our union in Christ. We kind of set the stage through the summer by watching Sinclair Ferguson and the teaching series on union in Christ. And so we're going to go even deeper into that uh, in Romans chapter 6. But what I want us to, to look at today is in the, verse, the first four verses is we need to see just how incompatible it is to be a justified person, to be a genuine Christian and continue in sin. We want to see what Paul says in, the, in the, verse, uh, the first three verses. We want to see just how illogical it is to claim to be a Christian and yet live in habitual patterns of sin. Now, before you're ready to say, oh, no, I give up. Don't, don't hang on. We're, we'll get there. We're going to talk about what he doesn't say. And then we want to look and see in verse 4, we want to see just what is this newness of life? If we are indeed justified people and we're called to live out the justified life, what are some of the principles in this new life that Paul says we are to walk in? Very practical with that. So let's start out first, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. That literally means, not may it be. Not may it be. And some of the other translations add some very emphatic uh, language there. Paul is very decisive and very emphatic in the negation of this. He's saying, not may it be ever. He's affirming by his statement, his own uncompromising conviction and passion and commitment to the truth. Paul was a man of passion. Paul was a man of commitment. He never lost sight of what happened to him on the Damascus Road. He never lost sight of the overwhelming power and majesty and wonder of God's love in redeeming such a sinner. He never lost sight of the power of God in the gospel that saved him and that continued to transform him. And so when he hears any type of inkling that, ah, you know what, I'm saved, I'm trusting Christ, you just said where sin increased, grace abounded. So if I live in this lifestyle and I continue to cater sin, then Paul, what I'm really doing is I'm magnifying the grace of God. And you can almost look at Paul as he Paul say, you blasphemer. You blasphemer. And friends, if you're a Christian, I want to give you a warning this morning. If you claim to know Christ and you, and you are living in habitual sin and it doesn't bother you, you need to go back and look at the foundation. And we'll talk more about that from 1 John. Because I don't want you to feel like, oh no, I still sin. I guess I'm done. Please don't get up and walk out. Because we're going to talk about what that truly means. But now let's understand that he's addressing two groups. And I, I mentioned these two groups. Romans is Paul's most logical of all of his letters. Very strategic. Uh, very methodical. If you recall through those first four chapters, first three in particular... He would address every argument that the Jew had about law, about the privilege of circumcision, about Abraham, uh, about oracles, about all these things. And he would just, he would, he, would, he would shred every argument that they had. And he's doing the same thing here. Because he's, he's writing to a mixed congregation and knows that. Probably 60% Gentile, 40% Jewish. 
And so he knows that there are antagonistic people in there against the gospel. And let's don't be so hard on the Jew. Is the gospel hits them right in the right where it hurts. It hits all of us. But so he's compassionate to his people, as you'll see later on. Oh, I wish that my kinsmen, I wish that I were a curse for my kinsmen. So he has a compassion for them, but he will not compromise the gospel regardless of who the people are. And so he's writing to a crowd that's going to be antagonistic towards the gospel. The crowd that would say, all, all of grace, good. We'll just keep on sinning, so all of grace. And Paul would say, nope. And then he's also writing to this, this professing only crowd. The crowd that would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm trusting him as my Savior. But they've never gone on in discipleship. They've never gone on in maturity. They've never grown on in growth and grace. Really what Paul's addressing in that second group is the group that Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, would label those of cheap grace. Of cheap grace. If you haven't read Bonhoeffer's book, and we may disagree with some of the theological positions of Bonhoeffer, uh, but his book, The Cost of Discipleship, is worth reading. And he said in there, cheap grace, quote, cheap grace is what we bestow upon ourselves. It's grace without discipleship, end quote. And that's what the crowd that Paul would address here with the, the, the statement, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. There is no such thing as cheap grace. There is no such thing as cheap grace. Now, let's take a look then at, at 1 John. Look at 1 John chapter 3. Because we're looking now at the, at the contradiction. The Christian who's been saved by grace cannot stay in habitual patterns of sin. It is, it is totally a contradiction to be of grace, in grace, and yet habitually be living in sin. And that's what Paul is saying. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says, you were once that, but you can't continue in that. But look what 1 John chapter 3 tells us. 1 John chapter 3 verse 4. Now what we, when we read this of John, what we will see from John and Paul is they're not saying that Christians don't sin. They're not saying that. Christians do sin. Uh, you have likely sinned already this morning. Uh, if not by a sin of, of action, maybe in your thoughts. And so, this isn't the issue of Christians not sinning. Christians sin. The difference is the long haul. What does it look like with the whole body of work? Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes, and I want you to notice the words about that refer to like habits or regular conduct. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So twice John has said, a practice of sinning and keeps on sinning. Now remember, he's, he's writing to believers. No one who keeps on sinning, there's that, third, that repetitive words, keeps on sinning, has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. There's, a, there's, the, there's the contrast. As he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, he goes back to verse 1. There's a repeated practice of sinning. Is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And there is the interpretive verse of this section. The devil. He goes on. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That application comes in Romans 6. No one who, born of God makes a practice of sinning. There is the third time that he would mention the practice of sinning. And he's about to say the third time of keep on sinning. And God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, it is very easy to read that verse. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. If you read that, and you don't keep it in context, and you don't understand the whole of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Christian life, if you, you're going to find yourself absolutely just miserable. 
And that's where you need to be discipled. That's where you need to be with someone that can help you uh, not to just take the hit and miss uh, way of reading your Bible, open up, read this verse, and then open up again and read another verse. I did that as an early Christian. I heard the story of someone doing that, and they opened it up, and they said that uh, they opened it up, and it says, and Judas went and hung himself. And then they opened it again, and it says, go and do likewise. We got to be careful that we don't take we don't take these verses in isolation, because if you read that one just as it is, then it is very discouraging. Because as I mentioned, we still sin. So what Paul is saying and John is saying is that you cannot maintain a habit of sinning in your life. You can't maintain a continual lifestyle of sinning in your life. That means that when you're faced with temptation, you're not constantly running to fulfill it. You are fighting against it. And there's a difference. Is you either will feed temptation or you will starve temptation. And Paul is saying that how can you possibly claim to be a child of God under the grace of God, given new life in Christ, and yet you continue to live as if that doesn't exist? And John would tell us in very strong language, it is absolutely a contradiction and impossible to claim to be a Christian, to claim to walk with Jesus Christ, to claim to know him, and yet you continue to walk in a lifestyle or a a conduct of regular sin. Now, that does not mean you're not going to sin. But you know what the difference is? The difference is this, is that when you do sin as a Christian you're pretty quick to find confession and repentance. You're pretty quick to find repentance and confession. And you know what else you're quick to do? You're quick to fight, fight hard against the very area that you fell. Is that you're never going to receive, you're never going to get sinless perfection, but you certainly can increase in sin less, to sin less. I want you to notice one other thing what John says here. Um, he says here about the seed He says that uh, the seed of God is in him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. What is a seed seed expected to do? To grow. To grow, right? And so when, when John writes, and he says the seed of God is planted in you, and Paul would write, how can you possibly continue in sin because you were dead? Because grace, you know what grace did? It planted within you the seed of new life. And that as a seed, it's nourished by the word of God. It's watered by worship. It's, it's, it's brought together with a fertilizer of obedience. And what happens, this thing starts to grow. And as it starts to grow, then you see it's totally incompatible with me to live a pattern of sin like I did before and yet claim to know Christ. And Paul says, blasphemy. Blasphemy. And so if, if you're struggling with sin, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian and you're not struggling with sin, you might want to rethink that. And the other side of this, in your fight against sin, make sure that you are fighting against your sin. God knows all things. We know that. And he knows that, that, that we are struggling against sin. But don't say, Lord, I'm struggling with this while you do it. Don't say, Lord, I, 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 I don't want to do this and do it. Because what, what that is, that is a false, that is a self-deception. Is that you cannot, you cannot continue in habitual sin without it crushing your heart. And it doesn't crush you because you're afraid of what God's going to do to you. That's not it. It crushes you because you're breaking the heart of the love of God who gave his son so that you wouldn't do the very thing that he delivered you from. Now, I want to harp on this because it's, it's something that we all struggle with. Is that you're going to sin. Ask yourself what the attitude that you have against the sin that you, that you fall to. And if you can tolerate it in your life, if you cannot um, uh, fight against it, and let's, let's just face it, sin is very pleasurable. Sin is very pleasurable. I mean, it wasn't, in the, in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't unattractive. It was very attractive. And whatever it is, sin in its, 
in all of its glamour, it is glamorous. And sin looks so good on the outside till you take the first bite. And then when you take the first bite, you'll find out the poison that it truly is. And that's just, I'm not talking about just lust of the flesh. It's all things. And if you're a Christian, then understand what Paul says. What? You're a Christian and you think it's okay to keep on sinning? You don't understand what grace is and you don't understand what the gospel has done to you. And so I would just challenge you to do self-examination, not a morbid way, but to look inside and see what is your attitude towards sin. Do you see it? Do you see sin within your heart? Do you see sin as this invader, this unwelcomed enemy that won't go away? It's like swat, swatting flies at a picnic. You know, they just don't go away. And that's what inward sin is like. Is it as a Christian, you should say, I am just so sick and tired of all this stuff that rages within me. I'm tired of the conflict. I was talking to a young Christian, a very young Christian, only a less than a year, probably about a year old, and um, gave me a call and said, Hey, I got a question for you. And uh, the question was, um, I'm having this real intense conflict. The things that I used to do, I don't want to do it. But I find myself gravitating, and there's times that I do it. I said, hey, I said, uh, do you know the Apostle Paul? And, uh, and, and uh, read Romans 7, because that's what Paul said. And so I said, don't look at that as a discouragement. Look at that as a sign of life. I said, think about your life prior to you coming to Christ. Did you have that conflict? Well, no. Of course not. You were, in, you were under, as Paul would say, we were under the reign of sin. We were under the, the dominion of Adam. So there is no conflict. The conflict only happens after you're in Christ. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to see in Romans 6, 1 through 4. It's totally incompatible for a Christian to embrace grace unto salvation and not embrace grace unto sanctification. Well, he would go on and he would give a second reason. Go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. Here's, here's a second reason why grace and continuing sin are incompatible. And it's simply because we died. We're going to expand more, this more in, in other pers- portions of chapter 6. And next week, Lord willing, and weeks to follow. Because I want you to understand how important this is in your Christian life. Romans 6 is the gateway to joy. Romans 6 is the gateway to joy. Because it, can, it, it, will, show you, it will show you that you're not responsible to kill sin that you can't. You're responsible to enter into union with Christ that kills sin. There's a difference. I looked so many times in my life, I have tried to kill something in the strength of myself that Christ has already taken care of. And you like to have done that too. You've had areas of sin. You just resolve. I'm not going to do it anymore. I've just, I'm just, and, and the more that you resolve in, in the strength of yourself to not do what you say you're not going to do, the more you're going to do it. Because God will let you flounder around trying to kill sin in the strength of yourself to teach you that that has already been taken care of. You need to enter into what my son has already done. Hence, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for it. Paul is saying that I am living the crucified, risen with Christ's life and that is the way you defeat sin, not in the strength of your resolve. And we'll see more of that. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but let's take a look at the second thing. Here's a second reason why being a Christian and living in sin habitually is incompatible. It's because believers died to the reigning power of sin. Now notice what I said. Believers died to the reigning power of sin. We are not dead to the power of sin. We are dead from the the domineering reign of sin. Here's one of the glorious truths about being a Christian. Is that prior to salvation, you cannot exercise your will to, to anything of God. He had to regenerate you. The greatest power the Christian has after regeneration, after new birth, after union with Christ, the greatest power you have is the power of choice. 
It's the power of choice. I choose to sin. You say, well, it's just a weakness of my flesh. I get that. God never gives us a pass on the weakness of our flesh. Remember what Peter did? The Lord said, Peter, God, please come pray with me. And the Lord goes, he comes back, and he finds Peter asleep. He finds the boys asleep. They couldn't pray with him. And Jesus looks at him and says, could you not even watch with me for an hour? It was a gentle rebuke for their inability to subdue the flesh. And so we can't, we can't, we can't give ourselves a pass on this. Is that we died to the reigning power of sin. Let's read it. Verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul continues his questioning to show either the antagonistic to the gospel Jew or the cheap grace Christian the incompatibility of sin and grace being active simultaneously in the person's life. And he would use the illustration of baptism. Now he's not teaching the doctrine of baptism here. Nor is he saying that baptism is efficacious to salvation. He's using baptism as an intimate picture of the believer's union in Christ's death. Which means death to the reigning power of sin. But as we know, visible baptism has a significant place in the Christian life. The Scottish theologian John Murray, uh, he said that Paul may very well have been appealing to the Christians here through the ordinance of baptism. Or it could be the, the, the spirit baptism putting us in Christ. At any rate, here are four applications of baptism in regards to showing us that we are no longer to live under the reigning power of sin. First, baptism is a sign and a seal of membership in the body of Christ. Secondly, baptism illustrates our union with Christ and our commitment to discipleship. You don't just get baptized and stay as you are. Baptism is, is us saying that I'm in union with Christ Buried with him in the likeness of his death. Raised in the likeness of his, unit, of his resurrection. To walk in a newness of life. Baptism also illustrates that we are all in with Jesus. He's not just our savior. He's our Lord. He's everything. And then finally baptism is a public profession. Of a break from sin to righteousness. Understand. And, and, and Man, Thomas Manton brought this out in his sermons. He says, baptism is a vow and an obligation to follow Christ. And I find it's a very good thing. It's to look back. Look back at your public uh, baptism and understand what you told the world. You told the world that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, that I'm a new person, and I am not going to follow the old life. That's what it tells, that's what it tells the world. It's a, sign of, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sign of being in Christ and that we're going to follow Christ. But Paul would add even more so about, and I want you to look at this with me. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Paul would show us how our death to Christ, death with Christ, illustrated by the intimacy of baptism, makes it incompatible for us to continue in sin. In Colossians chapter 3, in verse 1. If you've then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Notice here, for you have died. That's exactly what he says in Romans 6, 1 through 4. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, that certainly has future eschatological implications. But what about for right now? What about the daily life of the Christian? Yes, my life is hid with Christ in the heavenlies, and I look for the day when he returns, and my real life comes, and I'm done with sin altogether. But what implications of being dead with Christ now? Well, go down to verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In, those, in these you too once walked. Same language he uses in Romans 6. But when you read Colossians 3, 1 through 4, and we rejoice in the future, don't, don't fail to understand that verse 3 makes application for now in verse 5. 
He says, because you've died, therefore put to death what is in you. Put to death all this sexual morality, this impurity, this passion. Put it to death. You once walked like that, no longer walk like that. The very argument that he would say in Romans chapter 6. Paul would look at me and he'd look at you and use our name and said, listen, Jim, you claim to be saved by grace. You, you claimed to, to be changed by the dynamite power of the gospel. Now what? Is the gospel changing you every day to live out the grace-empowered life that causes you not to reign like you used to under sin? That's what he's saying to all of us. That's what he's saying here. Christian, you can't live in a pattern of sin. And one of the, the blights and one of the blemishes on the church of the Lord Jesus today is worldly Christians. Is the church in Jesus, of Jesus Christ in the culture is irrelevant today. Now, I, I only say that in the context of what we see in our culture. And the church is really silent. And I'm not talking about activism. I'm talking about salt and light. I'm talking about uh, salt and light gospel witnesses in our neighborhoods, in our communities, on our jobs. It's just when, when Christians are not acting any different than the unbelievers, we have no message. And when Christians are tolerating worldliness and worldly patterns of sin, as Jerry Bridges would say, respectable sins like discontent, complaining, anger, impatience, fretting over what's happening in the world. When we, when we have all those, you know what that is? Those are patterns of tolerated sin that are incompatible with grace. And so the world looks at us and we're getting a conversation with them and we're saying the same thing they're saying. And then they'll look at us and say, well, I guess there's no difference in Jesus. Friends, the only way that we can have an influence in the world is not to live isolated lives, but to live separated lives, empowered by grace, to infiltrate the culture with the love of Christ controlling us to where we're friends of sinners, and we're able to say, listen, let me tell you something and someone that's able to break the chains of sin and oppression that's upon you. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. What? Continue in sin? How, 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 how so? It's incompatible. Secondly, you died to the very thing that you're still tolerating and even embracing in your life. He goes, it's just not so. May not it be. But let's move on in verse 4. So he's, he's done with the questions until he gets down to uh, verse 15. But now he's, gonna, he's going to show us something that is extremely practical and important. In verse 4 he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Walk in newness of life. Now in verse 4 he will use the words, With him. With him. This is the first time Paul would use the two words with him, pointing to our union in Christ. It would appear four more times in the first eight verses of Romans 6. Four more times. Why is, why is Paul so hepped up on this union with Christ? Friends, when Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, unless you abide in me, you can do something. Anybody want to correct that? Nothing. I'm afraid oftentimes as Christians, we take Jesus' words, He said, unless you abide in me, you can only do something. And Paul wants us to understand that everything and anything of the Christian life is an outflow of our union with Christ. Where's your power to defeat sin? Christ's resurrection. Where's your power to uh, not live in old patterns uh, of sin? In the death with Christ. 
Where's your power to maintain a living communion with the Lord Jesus? It's in the union. Do you understand? And Sinclair brought that out this morning in the ABF. Sinclair, Derek Thomas brought it out this morning in the ABF. Do you understand that we walk with a triune God every day? That there's not a, a, a time in your life as a Christian that you're alone? Now, you may feel alone. I'll tell you, some of, the, some of the difficulties and challenges we've had the last year, forgive the personal illustration, but, you know, the caretaking with my father and the stroke that I went through, i tell you, there was many times it felt pretty lonely. It felt really lonely. But I look back, and even now, in, in, in some of what's transcribed, I look back, and the Lord was never more nearer than in the times I felt the loneliness. And that will be the same way with you is you may be in those dark periods right now. And you may think, where is he? You may be like Job crying out, oh, that I would know where he is and I might find him. And, and you'll go through that. And as you go through and each day builds up on each day and you're sustained by grace, you're going to look back and you're going to say, he was all so close to me. And that's only because of what Paul would say, that you are, he is with you, he is in you, for from him and to him and through him are all things. And, he's in, and if, if anything we get out of this study of Romans chapter 6, understand the inseparable union that we have with Christ. That not only is important for you to remember in the dark times, it's equally important as you remember in tempting times. Is that when you're tempted to fall back into the Adamic patterns... When you're tempted to feed temptation instead of starve it, remember who's in you. Remember who's with you. When you're tempted to have a conversation with another Christian that isn't edifying about another Christian, remember there's no private conversations. Remember that with him means in him and him in you. And look at verse 4, and we're going we're gonna to wind it down here. We're not going to go into the next part, which I want to, but we'll be here till 1230. So. And I want you to get it because it's so important. This, the logical application of justification by faith is first and foremost, is union in Christ produces new life. It produces new life. Look at verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, if we are to walk in newness of life, it presupposes that there is new life. That you have to have new life. Now, as a Christian, you know that when you're born again, God gives you new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And Ephesians 2 tells us that God has made us alive together with Christ. And so when Paul says that we are to walk in newness of life, then it has to mean that we had a, there was a point in life, in our physical life, there's a point in life that we were encountered by the gospel and the gospel gave us a new life. And with that new life, you know what comes with the new life? New desires. New loves, new pursuits, new outlooks. Everything is new. And this isn't moral or religious reformation in the strength of self. It is a radical heart transformation as a result of abounding grace. And that's why it's incompatible. And that's why the believer is no longer under the reign of sin. Because there's new life pulsating inside of us. It's a new life that was given, not earned. And it's a new life that has to produce a practice of a new life. And that leads to the walk of the new life. The Apostle Paul would mention 25 times in eight of his letters the word walk as is defined as conduct. And so when he talks about walk in, in newness of life, he's saying to these antagonistic Jews, and he's saying to these, you know, these, these carnal Christians, and there's such, no such thing as a carnal Christian, if he's saying to these carnal professors, is that you can't live in sin and live grace. Because if you have new life, because the seed is in you, you are going to produce the practice of the new life. Now the different areas, now, now we all grow differently. 
Some just blossom, it seems like, overnight. I'm envious of those. And then others, it takes a time. But it's not, don't measure how fast you grow. Thank God that you are growing and that there is the presence of growth. It's, I've, I've told numerous young Christians that the whole formula of the Christian life is three steps forward, two steps of stumbling backwards for a one-step gain. And oftentimes it feels like it's that pace, very slow. But, and, and, and I said, I love the illustration. Spurgeon was a master, and he, I love what he said. I've said this before, so don't feel like you have to laugh again. Um, he, said, he said about the pace of a Christian growth. He said, remember, even the snails got into the ark. And I thought, what a wonderful, encouraging picture that you see the cheetahs blowing by, you see the antelopes blowing by, and these snails are saying, we're going to make it. <laughs> and so, like us, this new life, this new life, you're going to make it. If it's genuinely the seed of God planted in us, we're going to make it. And Paul is going to unfold what this newness of life in union with Christ looks like in verses 5 and beyond. What I want to do, Lord willing, next week is I want us to take a look again at this walk in newness of life. And I want to identify five principles that mark the new life that God has done and that God provides for us that validates that we are in this walk of the newness of life. It'll prove we'd be much encouraged before you, but that's for another time. So let's, uh, let's pray. And Father, thank you so much for the amazing grace that brings us out of darkness into light. Thank you for new life in Christ. And Lord, may you, may you search all of our hearts and verify to us the seed of new birth. Let us not be discouraged because we still sin. Let us be encouraged that we fight against sin. And Father, may we understand the total incom- the incompatibility and the contradiction of professed to be under grace and yet habitually embrace sin. And may we also understand that we have died to the power, the reigning power of sin because of our union in Christ. May we know more and more what it means to be in that close relationship with Him. And so, Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You that You've been so faithful and kind. And we ask that You would just continue to teach us. Let us walk this this life of faith, strengthening one another, marveling over grace, and becoming more and more like Jesus. And we praise You in His name. Amen.